0: Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 1208, air date May 11th, 2023. Welcome, this is our town hall on innovation. And let me begin by welcoming everyone and just letting people know that uh, I'm doing this talk out of a island, I think the second largest island in the Mediterranean known as Sardinia. And I came here last week because we have a number of Um, very good activists and people on the ground in Sardinia. Uh, Just a little bit of background on Sardinia before I go into innovation, um, because I'm here and the context is important. Um, Sardinia is quite interesting because it has gone through many, many different uh, invasions since tens of thousands of years if you study the history. It's off the coast of uh, Italy, but one of the interesting things about Sardinia is that um, the people in Sardinia have owned communal land. OK, and um, I, I'm not sure if you understand what that means. That means the people as a population actually own their land together collectively. It's a very different concept for people actually owning, um, you know, their land, you know, um, their land individually. So the people in Sardinia um, own all all of their land uh, collectively. In fact, still today, 90% of the land is owned by the entire collective of people. And that's a very, very ancient tradition that if you actually go back to many, many cultures, particularly cultures uh, that were hunter-gatherer, semi-agrarian, they actually owned the land collectively. Uh, people, it was sort of out of people's thought frame to say, oh, this is my land. Even though some, even a shepherd who would use a, a piece of land, um, and if they died, it went back to the community. So everyone was all, always recognizing that they were leasing the land for a period of time. What's interesting is in um, 2000, the Italian government tried to tell the Sardinians that all of that communal land. Was overnight going to be owned by Italy, and it was going to be national parks. And the Sardinians had massive protests all over Sardinia, and they won. It was a bottoms-up movement, not supported by politicians. And if you go around Sardinia, you'll see these goats as their logo, and basically it's a very, a big symbol of defiance. So when we were driving around, with one of the shepherds, he says, oh yeah, I own this land. And goes, we all own the land. And what's spectacular is the land is kept absolutely gorgeous. So it's not like this idiotic notion that if people own things communally, no one's going to take care of it. In fact, everyone takes care of it. So it's it's sort of an interesting reminder of what happens when people actually work together. Um, we are taught, um, as many of you will learn when you take our course in truth, freedom, and health, the right wing has completely manipulated people to think that when people organize bottoms up, that must be communist or quote unquote Marxist. And that's the way they have engineered people's brainwashing to not organize bottoms up in the modern century. And then what's happened starting in the 1900s is that while the right wing attacked bottoms up movements that way, the left wing actually took over these bottoms up movements top down. You know, and control them. So we live in a very interesting point right now throughout the world is that the bottoms up movements are told not to build a bottoms up movement, that you should outsource your future to some stupid politician. And in the United States or anywhere in the part of the world, you see this and the politicians you get basically lie through their teeth. They'll say whatever the people want to hear. And essentially, it's a circus show that they create. So we'll come back to that. But uh, one of the powerful things is when people do organize bottoms up, you get real change. When people don't organize bottoms up and you think someone else is going to do it, you end up with where we are now. So where are we now and why is this and and why are we here? John, if you have, hey, John, can you bring up that um, graph of the the, uh, results and then the graph of our six points, John, can you just bring that up? Let me look for those. Yeah. So John's going to bring that up. I'm going to hand that over to you, John. Um. I've okay. Um. Uh, there's the. Um. Uh, this is the uh, graph of the life expectancy. Is that what you were looking for, Dr. Shiva? Is that what you were looking for, Dr. Shiva? You're muted. Hello, Dr. Yeah, hey, you have that up, John. Yeah. So the reason I wanted to bring this graph up is, is that um, from a uh, world perspective, what's going on right now is that this line, or this line graph, the x-axis goes from 1980 to around 2021, and it goes on the y-axis from 74 years all the way up to 86 years. Every line on this graph represents the life span graph of different countries. The United States is highlighted in red. All those little gray lines represent individual countries. The dark gray line, if John points to there, represents um, the... Can you point to that line, John? The dark gray line? Yeah, that line represents the average from the left to the right, John, bottom left to right. Um, That dark gray line represents the average of all the industrialized nations. Now the naive person when they look at the graph on the united states they go oh my god this is COVID." nope it isn't go back to early 1980 you'll see right at that point john is pointing to the united states was matching the rest of the industrialized world in terms of lifespan but right around 1982 the united states goes in a different direction and if you followed around right there to 2014 a little bit to the right john it starts actually going downward, even there, right there. You see that, no, 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 slow, slow, John, slow, John. Go to that peak right there, go to the peak to the left, John, right there, and you see it starts going downward, okay? And then what is this graph showing? It's showing that the United States life expectancy is going completely in the other direction of other countries. Everyone see that? And then it shows that by 2014, it was going even further down, it was flatlined, And then when, quote unquote, the pandemic hit, it went downward because most people's immune systems were shot, which we've talked about in our first town hall. And we taught people how to, um, you know, support their natural immunity. But no one, no presidential candidate will discuss this graph. Why? Because it exposes the left and the right. Because you go back to 1980, you had Ronald Reagan and then you had um, was it uh, George Bush? And then you had uh, Clinton, and then you had George W. Bush, then you had Obama, then you had uh, Trump, and then you have Biden. All of these presidents, left or right, have contributed to that. I hope that's clear. Does so that make sense? All of these people are indicted in this because they basically destroyed the health of the American people. Thanks, John. And when you, um, so what we decided to do as a part of our campaign was. People typically, politicians say, oh, I have this platform. Our platform is not really a platform, but it's really a solution. So John, if you bring up the graph with the the six um, slide, the the six dots. So our first town hall we did was healthcare. We taught people how to strengthen your immune system. Next we did was uh, our environmental policies, people should eat locally and healthy. We taught people how to do that. You can go see that video. Then um, last Thursday, we taught people how to know truth from lies. We taught people system science. Today, we're going to help talk about innovation, how to make your children smart. Um, next week, we're going to talk about how you become a leader in your community. And then we're going to teach you the, the next Thursday, uh, from the following Thursday, uh, how to manage your money and prosper. And we'll keep repeating these. So our campaign for president is actually going to teach people wherever you are in the world or in the United States. And we're going to go door to door and offer people the opportunity to take care of your immune system. That's really the healthcare policy. Environment is eating locally and healthy. Education is how to really tell truth from lies. And um, I'm going to teach you today the seven secrets of innovation. If you have children, if you want to be an innovator, you're going to learn seven practical things on how to actually learn how to innovate that I learned from my own experience as a child, learning how to, from starting with creating the first email system, so on. So thanks, John. Now, what's fascinating is in Sardinia, something interesting is taking place. You guys may know this or not, but Sardinia has the highest number of people per capita who live over 100 years old. I was just on the way over here. The hotel where I'm staying at, the owner and her father is 88 years old, and he was literally climbing a tree. Seriously, okay. So it's not like people are just living; they're very vibrant and vigorous. And Sardinia is known as having one of the blue zones, and the blue zones. There's five of them in the world where people live in a consistent fashion over 100 years. So why is it that in this island, people are living over 100 years? And in the United States, people are going the other direction. You really have to ask this question. And you will find the answers to this question by another contradiction. In the island of Sardinia, what I came to find out was I, I, I uh, arrived here on May 1st. And do you guys hear that music in the background? Is that affecting you? John, do you hear that? No. no. Okay. All right. So I arrived here on May 1st. Um, and that day was the Festival of St. Efficio. And you, I did a video on this, and it starts from May 1st to May 4th. On May 4th, when that festival ended, guess what happened? 2,200 NATO troops, U.S. NATO troops, landed on the island. And as you know, there's this war in Ukraine and Russia going on, and I came to find out since 1956 this island has been used as a NATO-US military training ground. In fact, 50,000 square kilometers of Sardinia are used by US and NATO. So this beautiful island, which has the highest number of people who live per capita over 100 years, has got NATO and US here. Then I came to find out, if you look at Sardinia, if it's sort of shaped like an oval, the eastern province where I'm in right now, where I came to do, in fact, I have to do a research presentation tomorrow, on anti-aging, we, we do a lot of researches. You know, I, I am, I'm actually a practicing scientist and systems biologist, but we've done some very interesting research at the molecular level, why people live long. So I'm gonna be presenting that research tomorrow, but, and that's in, uh, so I'm in the region known as the Oliostra region, O-G-L-I-A-S-T-R-A. And this is a region where it's known as one of the blue zones. Now, south of this region is a region called Quira, Q-U-I-R-R-A. In that region, 65% of the shepherds are dying of cancer. Let me repeat that again. 65% of the shepherds south of here are dying of cancer. And one out of four children who were born in 1995 have cancer. And the sheep and everything are growing with two heads mutations, why? Because the United States and NATO have been using that region as a weapons testing ground for depleted uranium-tipped missiles. So they shoot them here. And when those uranium-tipped missiles hit something, they put out thorium debris radiation. And and the dust of that radiation is 1,000 times smaller than a red blood cell. So, if a red blood cell is this big, okay, the, the thorium particles are much smaller, okay? And they can easily enter that red blood cell. So, think about what I'm saying. You have a pristine island, and in the United States, lifespan is going down. And instead of trying to learn from these people while they're living long, we're actually exporting death and devastation here. And it's sort of very sickening because when I was out, I was looking at, just went to the small village and people live very simply and the food is just phenomenal. And I thought about where I grew up in India in our village. And I really wondered, wow, why did my grandparents or why did my parents have to leave that? The only reason people leave is because um, they want to go to another industrialized nation to, quote unquote, make more money and have a, quote unquote, better life. And the reason that many people leave their countries is because if you look at the history in India, it was British colonialism or some type of invasion or some type of dictatorship that that destroys these very beautiful countries and people have to leave. And But then when you look at the way people are living, it's the way we all want to live. Many people in the United States go to these places for vacation, right? So the whole thing is sort of asked backward in many ways. But in Sardinia, what's amazing is you have this total dichotomy. You have people who have figured out how to live really long. And then you have the United States and NATO using this island to do weapons testing, and they're actually killing people here. It's quite sick. And when you are among these people, you look at the incredible amount of innovation they've done. When we went to the Shepherds. Place. I mean, if I showed you the pictures, it's a beautiful, gorgeous house that they built, all from the local stone, all from the local juniper trees. Everything is absolutely beautiful, architected gorgeous. And it's not like any of these people went to RISD or to Harvard School of Design. The level of innovation there is quite extraordinary, how they bring water into the places, how they make the food products, et cetera. We've all been brainwashed to think, that innovation must come from a few elite institutions. And when you look at indigenous people and how they live, they actually learn how to innovate beyond our belief. I'll give you an example. The floors of these homes are made with cork, which comes from the tree, the cork tree, which I didn't even know there was a tree for that. The home that I live in, in near Boston, Massachusetts, the home um, was designed by one of the heads of the Bauhaus movement at, out of Harvard School of Design called Walter Gropius. Well, those two used to have cork floors. So all of these elite you know, Western designers at Harvard actually learned all this stuff from these people when you really study it. So that brings me to today's talk about innovation with that background. Why is innovation important? Because ultimately innovation is about solving problems. That's what innovation is and innovation everyone should be happy about is in everyone's DNA. I did a long four-hour talk on this as a part of our Truth, Freedom and Health series called the Seven Secrets of Innovation. I'm not gonna go into all the details today, I'm gonna share with you the key elements of this and everyone's welcome if you're not a warrior scholar uh, uh, to go read about it, but I'm just gonna share with you the key parts of our town hall today. And, The seven secrets of innovation were revealed to you that young children particularly um, are innovative by nature and innovation is in our DNA. And you don't have to go kill people or be part of the military industrial academic complex to innovate. We've been bamboozled particularly in the United States to think you go start war and out of war you get innovation and we should be so happy we went and killed somebody. It's called the military industrial academic complex. The military-industrial-academic complex is made up of three components, the military, big universities, and big industry. So it is within this triangle, people have been bamboozled to think that's where innovation takes place, the military-industrial-academic complex. And so people are brainwashed to think, well, if you you go fight war, we're going to create this. So on a personal note, I know this very, very well because I've had two experiences on the, uh, in, in the timeline of innovation. One was coming to MIT, which is the number one technology, quote unquote, the number one technology institution in the world, which is part of the military industrial complex. I arrived there in 1981. I created many, many things while at MIT, won many, many awards for innovation and engineering, um, and you can go read about them over the 33 years I was at MIT. But the interesting thing is I didn't need to come to MIT to innovate. Long before that, while I was a 14 year old kid growing up in a small uh, town in New Jersey, I created the world's first email system. Email was not done by MIT or the military industrial complex. It was done by a 14 year old kid before that. And that speaks to the more important source of where innovation comes from. Innovation can happen anytime, any place by anybody. Now, the reason this is important from a policy making perspective, and the reason it relates to that downward curve, is we've been taught that all great innovations must come from elite institutions. So if you want to cure your health, you have to, you know, go to Harvard Medical School. And when you come to Indigenous places, you find out that Indigenous people were highly innovative. They figured out how to use food, how to use Um, lifestyle, how to use all these things in a very particular way to live very long lives. And you can see it right here where I am. People live to highest per capita, people living 100 years and longer, the highest in the world. Well, they don't have Harvard Medical School doctors here. It's probably good news they don't have them because they'd probably be killing all these people. So when you look at the elements of innovation that helped me build email as a 14-year-old kid, It wasn't done by big military, big industry, and big institution. It was done in a much more different environment. It was a loving family. It was a mentor. And I had access to some infrastructure at a small medical college. So it was in that small triangle of collaboration and cooperation, not from war, that the invention of email took place. So if you look at it from a policy perspective, what's happened is we have convinced people that the way that you get innovation is you have to be a dropout out of Harvard, right? Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg, or you have to go to war, or you have to pump billions of dollars in into what they call centers of innovation. Like you give a billion, billions of dollars to Silicon Valley or billions of dollars to MIT, and then boom, you should be lucky that a Google comes out of it. And this is a complete farce and it's a racket. So what happens is, government funding your tax dollars go to these centers of innovation through venture capitalists and they basically it's a rigged game because they put a ton of money so they'll give you know 100 companies 10 million bucks and if one of them becomes google they'll say oh my god aren't we great investors well let me contrast that to the invention of email i got paid less than probably $5000 from inventing email what were the conditions? First of all, the conditions were, I knew that as a child, even though I was smart, if I worked hard, that I was innovative. So the first principle of innovation that you'll learn is, I alluded to it that first of all, everyone needs to know that innovation is in your DNA. It's not specific to some nerd wearing glasses and talking in a squeaky voice and going to MIT or looking a certain way. Number one principle is that innovation is in our DNA. So I had the confidence as a child that it was in my DNA and that if I was presented with a problem, that if I worked hard enough and I could solve it. If you look at the history of humankind from irrigation to architecture, um, to the discovery of fire and to use fire, all these things, um, these innovations were done by everyday people. They weren't done by the military industrial complex. And innovation was done to solve a particular problem. So keep that in mind. You had a problem in front of you and you wanted to find a solution. Politicians were not involved. Lawyers were not involved, okay? And in fact, those two group of people never solve anything. In fact, they create problems. Yet we keep electing these people into government when they've never solved anything. Whenever you hear a politician say, I'll fix something, you have to look at his history, has he ever fixed anything in his life? Politicians wanna make people dependent on them and this military industrial complex. But if you go to the first principle of innovation, innovation is um, in everyone's DNA. The second principle of innovation that's important is that if you have a child or your mother or father and you want your child to be innovative, or if you wanna be innovative, the second principle is you, you should find a mentor. If you don't know how to innovate, find someone who's an innovator and learn from them. It's something that can be learned. I was very fortunate as a 14 year old kid, I found a guy called Dr. Les Michelson. He was a physicist working at the universe, uh, what is now known as Rutgers Medical School. He believed in me. He gave me access to his computers and I learned a lot from him because I saw that, first of all, he worked very hard, he was very smart, Um, But he taught me a lot of innovation as we should foster mentoring. In fact, today, I started a very small foundation called Innovation Corps. Um, You can go to innovationcorps.org, I-N-N-O-V-A-T-I-O-N, corpse.org. And I literally select uh, eight to 10 kids per year. I give them a little bit of money, but I mentor them. It's my way of giving back. But if you are an innovator, you can mentor other people. But mentoring is really, really important because kids um, or anyone, you don't have to be a child, need to get some advice from person. So that's the second piece. And that doesn't require a lot of money. You don't have to pour billions into that. The third aspect of innovation is we have to identify the real problem. And a lot of what I teach people in our Truth For The Health movement is teaching people to take a systems approach to identify a problem. So for example, if you look at the issue of gun violence, it's a pretty big thing. There was just another shooting in Texas, right? And whenever a problem comes up, you typically have the idiots make it a left or right issue. One wing of the establishment says, oh my God, you know, we got to take away the guns. Another wing says, no, 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 it has nothing to do with the guns. It has to do with people taking drugs. These kids are taking all these mental drugs. But when you, and again, we did a whole four hour course on this. And when we applied the systems approach, we find out that the real problem, the real issue with gun violence has nothing to do with any of those issues. It actually has to do consistently with income inequality and neither the left or the right will address that, okay? When you, spread, when you take everything away, you find out most of these kids go shoot people or in fact, we're on drugs or this, And you peel back the second layer, you find it has to do with income inequality. And neither the left or the right really want to address that, the lack of infrastructure in many of the inner cities. So in the case, my case, when I look at an issue, I apply always a systems approach to find out what the real problem is. This is why in 2020, I was able to see, you know, two, three years ahead and know that the real problem was Fauci, that the real problem was that the immune systems of Americans were breaking down. And that's why in March of 2020, I was telling people we should not have lockdowns, we should support boosting the immune system. Robert F. N. Kennedy was out there supporting lockdowns. It, he waited until a year and a half to attack Fauci because he was watching which way the wind blew. That's what politicians do. Real innovators and engineers and scientists like myself, we take a systems approach and we find the real problem. So the third aspect of innovation is: Are you solving a real problem? In my case, as a fourteen-year-old kid, when I was working in that university, I identified a real problem with Dr. Michelson's help, which was that you had secretaries in 1970s. Many of you over the age of under the age of fifty or forty may not know this, but women could only have four jobs: they were either a housewife, a secretary, a teacher, or a nurse. Well, in this large university, the secretaries the people who used the typewriter and created memos were always women. And in every office in this university, women would be in front of a typewriter where their boss was always a male writing letters. Some of you may remember this, you know, they would write a memo and the memo had a certain structure to, from, subject. If they had to write a carbon copy, let's say they had to do two from, and they had to uh, do a CC to three other people, they would literally put a carbon paper behind that, and another white paper and type this out. And then they put, they had inboxes and outboxes, and they had these folders. And this entire system, it was called the inter-office mail system. Now, in those days, you had these big mainframe computers. I'm not talking about sending simple text messages. I'm talking about this entire system of paper-based communications. And it was a major problem because if a woman had to write Twenty CC, she'd be typing away, typing away. This is before Xerox copiers even came around, you know. So, and um, women were also told that they weren't smart enough to use a computer. Who used the computer in those days were old white guys with little white suits on, They were, and with little pocket protectors. And computing was very, very difficult. You had to write in this complex language. So the problem I saw was, oh, imagine you have these things called computers. If you can move this very complex system, inbox, outbox, folders, all those things into the electronic version, that would be pretty cool. And what's also important to remember is the other doctors in that, they didn't consider this a problem, why? Because doctors were very happy to just go tell the secretaries what to do, dictate to them and they write a memo. So the real problem we identified was, very complex paper-based communications, all those features, hundreds of features had to be put in electronic form. I did that in 50,000 lines of code. I named that system email and went and got a US copyright for it. So there's no controversy invented email. Uh, if you're using Wikipedia as your source, Wikipedia is, is a racist organization which lies and is part of the military industrial complex. I never talked about the invention of email and we'll talk about that as one of the problems in innovation until many years later. But I was solving a real problem. And so if you want to innovate, and if America or the world wants to innovate, we actually have to solve real problems, not fake problems. Politicians and lawyers get us solving fake problems, and we never solve the real problem. When it comes to the issue of health, we have to boost immunity. That's the real problem. It's not about waiting until people get sick. That's solving a fake problem. All right. The next part of the innovation process is it's very, very important to identify who we're actually serving. Ultimately, innovation is about service. You know, in our campaign, we say service is citizenship. Who are we actually serving? Yeah, and you have to be very clear in that. Again, this is the fourth uh, aspect of innovation. And in my case, in that university, it was the secretaries and, I identified with them because the old white guys thought the secretaries were just lesser than them, they were women. But to, to me, I was gonna serve them by creating this electronic system that could move them from the typewriter to the keyboard and I had a lot of respect for them. Um, so, you know, it's really, really important to identify who we're actually serving uh, in any of these problems. When you When you consider the issue with health, again, who are we serving? Well, we're serving a lot of people who are becoming more and more unhealthy. Um, it's predicted in the next 10 years, 4 billion people in the world will be obese. 4 billion people. Okay. Obesity leads to cardiovascular issues, obesity leads to diabetes, a whole range of metabolic syndrome. So that would be a good group of people to go help, right? People. And in fact, today what's happening is the high sugar diets are destroying people's health everywhere. So it's very, very important to identify who is the person and get very clear on that. and And you really have to look at when politicians and lawyers say, "Oh, we're going to solve this. Well, who are you actually who are you actually serving?" Most of them are self-serving themselves. They're not really solving the fundamental issues. In the case of, for example, if you look at what's going on, we discovered the real problem again in 2020, that government has a backdoor portal into every major social media company. We brought this problem out. Tucker Carlson said nothing in 2020. He waited three years. He doesn't wanna solve the problem. He wants to now grift from one area to another area with another grifter called Elon Musk. These people do not wanna solve the real problem. The real problem is government should have no backdoor portals into social media companies. If you listen to them, they will never address that real problem. They're not innovators. They're actors, they're doing theatrics, to divert people. Real innovators go identify the real problem. Um, And they understand who their real customer is, right? Who are you actually serving? These people don't wanna serve anyone. In fact, they hate everyday people. Let's go to the fifth aspect. If you're gonna make something from an innovation standpoint, it cannot be just done for one individual at one time. You have to create innovations that can scale. If you ask people what what Henry Ford did, many people say, oh, Henry Ford created the car. Well, that's not true. Henry Ford did not create the car. He created the assembly line so you could create a car that everyone could afford. When Steve Jobs made the iPhone, he made it that it could be made in such a way that everyone could reasonably afford it and would scale. So it's very, very important to build things to scale which means can you make something that is affordable to people, a process, you know? And typically building to scale means that you have to figure out, is there some fundamental process that you could teach anyone? And typically from a cultural perspective, this is what culture is. One culture learns something and they pass it on to their children. If you, When I went out to the shepherd, there's a very specific way that they actually milk the sheep. And I saw my grandfather do it this way. And if you go try to milk a sheep, the sheep's gonna run away. Um, so they would teach these things to their children and children's children. So building the scale has a lot to do with also educating people, um, passing on knowledge in a fundamental way that people can learn. So one of the things we've done is, you know, I used to teach. Um, this entire concept of system science at MIT. You know, people just pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to go to MIT. What is system science? Well, about 20,000 people in the world know system science. It's the knowledge of how every system in the universe works. It's You have 8 billion people in the world, but only 20,000 people know this knowledge. That's not really valuable because this knowledge should actually be spread to everyone. So one of the innovations I did was to take this very powerful knowledge and consolidate it into a way that not only could I teach it to people, but for example, Peter could teach it to somebody, Peggy could teach it to somebody um, and anyone here. So that was really the innovation. So people didn't have to go to a big institution to learn, but put it in such a way that anyone could learn. You see, that's called building to scale. And it's very, very important that we build the scale, but that demands that we take knowledge out of the hands of the few and give it to the many. All right, that's very important. The hard lesson that I learned, and this is the sixth lesson, is it's very, very important to protect your innovation and to defend your innovation. I didn't learn that until probably about 10 years ago. Um, I was brought up to be very, very humble. You make something, yes, you gotta know, but you don't say it's mine, mine, mine. But I learned that you have to protect your innovation. You know, I created email when I was 14, it's all documented, there's no controversy at all. The only problem I did was I wasn't like Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg, who had wealthy parents who promoted them, did public relations. It was only 33 years later, um, did somebody came across all my work after my mother had put it in a beautiful suitcase, the editor of Time Magazine, And then it was shared with the rest of the world in November of 2011. Then it went into the Smithsonian. And when it went into the Smithsonian, I was called all sorts of names, attacked viciously, because it was like a new skull was found in Africa. And then I had to spend four years defending myself. I filed a lawsuit. I won a million dollars and the articles were removed. But the good thing that I did do in 1981 was I filed an important legal document was, which was an official legal registration of my copyright, protecting me, exposing me, uh, defending me as the inventor of email. But um, uh, I did do that. Unfortunately, in those days, you couldn't patent your innovation because the United States patent systems are starting to degenerate. And this is because politicians and lawyers have no idea when new things come, how to actually protect them. So let me give you an example. In 1976, if you were a musician like the Beatles, or if you were an artist, or if you were a writer, there's a law called the Copyright Act of 1976. And you would use that law to protect your written piece of work, right? And copyright law is 75 years plus um, uh, following uh, the death of the uh, creator, okay? So if the Beatles, all the Beatles died in 1990, they still have another 75 years of protection. So if you write a book today, and God forbid you die tomorrow, your estate still has 75 years, all right? In 1978, when I invented email, the politicians and lawyers in Congress had no idea what software was. They didn't even have a law to protect it. And the Supreme Court didn't know what software was. This is how new it was. So they didn't allow software patents. But in 1980, the laws were changed, which allowed people to use the Computer Act of uh, 1980, which meant you can use copyright law to protect software inventions. I learned about it in 1981 when I was at MIT. The president of MIT told me about that. So I wrote away for the papers. I didn't have lawyers, I did it on my own. On August 30th, 1982, I received the first copyright pursuant to the uh, Software Act of 1980, protecting me. So I did do that well, okay? The thing I did not do well, which is a seventh secret or aspect of innovation, is to promote your innovation. Because as a humble Indian, I was told, oh, if you promote yourself, you're being too boastful. But I learned after 2011, when people try to steal credit for your stuff, you better beat your chest loud and say, yes, that's mine. And it doesn't matter. People say, oh, why are you... Why are you taking credit? Because I did the work. And this is something very important. People need to feel proud of the work they're doing and learn to promote it. This is why in 2020, when we were the first to expose Fauci, when we were the first to expose the government portal, when we were the first to expose election fraud, all these other people were quiet for three years. They came out much later. And that's why we defend the work that I did, and our movement does, and the other people do, because why is it important to promote your innovation? And why does credit matter? And you will find out that the elites are very, very, very particular about getting credit for their work. Hollywood elites have agents, right? They make sure their name comes first in a movie, and they pay a lot, and they defend that. And it's, it took me a while to learn That's very important you take credit and promote your invention, especially if you did the work. You don't want to steal other people's stuff. And why does credit matter? Credit matters because it gives people the truth about where innovation comes from. In the case of the invention of email, credit is extremely important because it exposes to people that great innovation can happen anywhere, anyplace, at any time. And more more importantly, it did not come from the military-industrial-academic complex. That's very important for people to understand. When it comes to taking credit for the fact that it was our movement that first talked about the lockdowns and said we were against them, because that came from an independent movement, it's very important for people to understand it was very innovative what we did to teach people about how to protect their immune system in 2020. When other people were scaring people, we did that. We take credit, again, we were an independent movement and I could go on and on and on. But the reason it's important to promote yourself if you did the work and the reason credit matters is people need to know the real source of innovation. And you'll find out in conclusion that the real source of innovation more than likely always comes from people working in the edges, not in the center. Let me repeat that, great innovation occurs on the edges. If you research the history of the invention of TV, TV was invented by a 14 year old boy called Philo Farnsworth, working on a small farm in Franklin, Idaho. It wasn't done by Stanford or RCA. It took 60 years for Philo to get credit. And so in conclusion, as I end this sort of town hall on innovation, the most important elements to understand again, as you know, in review is that number one, It's very important for everyone to feel good about themselves that innovation is in everyone's DNA. You don't have to go to a big university. It's within us to solve problems. And this has very, very important social ramifications. Two, it's good to collaborate and find a good mentor, someone who can train you and teach you. Number three, we always need to look at a situation and identify the real problem. Last week, we taught people in our town hall how to identify real problems using the art of system science. Fourth, ultimately, we're here for service. You need to identify who is a real customer. Who are you trying to serve? And the next one is to understand that if you're gonna build something, build something that as many people as possible can afford it and use it. And the other thing is, it's important we fight for laws that defend people's innovation. And, um, and I'll come back to that because I wanna emphasize, and the, and, the, and, the, and the last part is credit does matter. If you built something and you say, I did that, if everyone says, oh, uh, Peter, why are you taking credit for it? Why don't you just be humble? You should tell them to go to hell because anyone who tells you that more than likely is afraid because they're trying to steal your innovation because they wanna misdirect the source of that innovation to something that comes top down, not from below. But going back to number six um, on uh, protecting your innovation what's important about that is that right now, the four major technology companies in the world, Google, Facebook, Oracle, um, and um, uh, uh, Microsoft, what they're trying to do is they're trying to eliminate all of patenting. They wanna make everything trade secrets. What that will mean is only a few major companies can even get legal intellectual property protection. In the United States, for example, the founders of the United States created very, very strong patent laws so anyone could innovate and get royalties. Um, So by way of example, 33,000 companies came out of MIT. Those 33,000 companies today produce 2 trillion to the GDP. So um, why am I saying that? What that means is that when you have good laws that protect small innovators, people can go make money. But nowadays what's happened is They made it very hard for small inventors to get their patents through the patent office. You have to have a lot of money and a lot of lawyers to do this. So the entire innovation system of protection is being destroyed. The other thing is, this is why we have to stop electing lawyers and politicians and these idiots, is that there's new technologies constantly coming and you have to make sure the new innovators are protected. I'll give you an example, 3D printing. There's some very, very new stuff coming out in 3D printing that will affect many artists and designers. Another is AI. You know, it is my view that if, for example, if you're a carpenter on this call and you know how to make something, eventually these artificial intelligence machines are watching you or learning from your expertise, and eventually they'll be putting carpenters out of business. What are the innovation laws that are going to protect the carpenter who actually came up with the original? ideas. In my view, if robots are going to come, you should give back a royalty stream back to the original person, even the robot learned from. It's quite an innovative innovative idea, but you'll never hear this idea from a dumb lawyer or politician. They're always 30 years behind. So this is why, in closing, the reason I wanted to do this town hall is you've learned seven important elements of innovation. You can teach your kids this. I learned this as a child, and later on, but it's very, very important that we unleash lots of innovation everywhere. So instead of $10 billion going into one place, we should spend, imagine $5,000 in a whole bunch of places to support young people. And that's how much the invention of email took. It was about the first year when I, I didn't get paid anything. The second year, I didn't get paid anything. I got free food in the in the college cafeteria. In the third year, I got paid $1.25 an hour. Great innovation doesn't mean a lot of money. It means unleashing the ability for people to solve problems. Anyway, I hope this was helpful, and um, these are the kinds of knowledge that we want to share with you on our campaign. And innovation, when it's unleashed everywhere, is really going to help solve the problems of truth, freedom, and health. And as I stated in the beginning of this, right now the health, particularly in the United States, is going downward, and the United States wants to export that same thing to every other country. So innovation is critical to solve these problems. Thank you.